My best friends in middle school were Bill Dart, Jeff Snyder, and Tim Emler, and we spent time at each other's houses, but the, the, our favorite house to spend time at was Tim's house um, because he lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of kids that were our age and also his house back to woods. And one of our favorite things to do this time of year um, in central Illinois where I grew up was we like to divide into teams and throw hedge apples at each other. Um, if you're not familiar with a hedge apple, this is what a hedge apple looks like. It's about the size of a softball. It's super sticky. Uh, it kind of smells like an orange a little bit. It has nothing to do with an orange. And it hurts wicked bad when you get hit with it. <laughs> and so, you know, why not? We're middle school boys, so this is what middle school boys do too. And I remember one time we were out in the woods, um, and obviously you want to do anything that you could to avoid being hit by one of these. And I found a hole um, in the woods, and it looked like it was about four foot deep. And so I went and I jumped in that hole, not thinking of the fact that for two days previous that it had rained and sunk about um, up to my knees in mud. Um, I was kind of out in this area by myself, you know, because again, trying to get as far away from the, uh, the mayhem as I possibly could. And I struggled to get out of that hole. And the more I struggled, the deeper I sunk into that hole. And finally, even as a seventh grader, I had a lot of pride, didn't want to ask for help. And so finally, I started to cry out to my friends for help. My friends came, and I've always kind of been uh, a larger child than other, you know, children my age. And so they had a really hard time, like, wrestling me out, and I said, go. I told Tim, I said, go get your dad. And so Mr. Imler came out, and he helped me get out of that hole, leaving behind a pair of sneakers. I thought of that story when I was reading through the introduction to the section of this letter that we've been in called Ephesians in our Bible that this is kind of the description that Paul gives us right off the bat, that we are in this place that we're stuck, that we're hopeless and helpless, and there's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. So we're going to look at this introduction today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and, and maybe you'll get this idea as well as we read these words together. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. Our condition before we put our faith in Jesus was pretty bleak. Having a clear picture of who we are apart from Christ is so critical to understand the message of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. But it's not exclusively a religious term. In fact, it was used a bunch in Jesus' day. And this word gospel 
was commonly used as the announcement that a battle had been won over an enemy or that an enemy had been defeated by the Romans, more specifically by Caesar. That Caesar had once again rescued the empire from something bad. So there isn't good news without there first being bad news. Jesus has come to rescue us, and Paul describes why we needed rescued. This is why it's so important for us to know and remember who we were before we met Jesus. First, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, he reminds us of who we were before we met Jesus. Knowing this then fills us with a sense of awe and gratitude and thankfulness for what he has done for us. It enables us to treat others with kindness and forgiveness because he has shown us kindness and has forgiven us so much. For those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, it opens their eyes to the reality of their condition without Jesus. It's not a way to scare someone into a relationship with Jesus, but it's a loving warning to who they are without him. Paul describes our condition before we put our faith in Jesus by listing three realities here. The first one is this, before putting our faith in Jesus, we aren't people who simply do bad things. We are spiritually dead people separated from the source of life, God. He says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Perhaps you've heard people say this, or maybe you even say this yourself, I'm not really that bad of a person. There are people who have done so many worse things than me. I'm I'm basically a good person. I'm nice to people. I mind my own business. I don't cause any trouble. But the problem with this perspective is how is good and bad measured? By what standard? What one person deems to be bad, another person may not find bad. Or who determines what's good? Apart from God, the standard used to measure what is good and what is bad is often based on whether or not our own behavior, is based on our own behavior or our understanding of what is right and wrong. Sometimes it's based on our own experience, expectation about how others should behave and our own sense of how things should be, which means if personal perspective is the standard, then there are the same number of standards as there are people living at any one time. We don't like the word sin. Instead, we often substitute a word, we make mistakes. The problem with this is mistakes imply a lack of intent. So how do you categorize something done intentionally that harms another person? If we think our fundamental problem is we simply do bad things, 
from time to time or we just make mistakes, then our solution becomes to either correct our mistakes or stop doing bad things or do enough good things to hopefully outweigh the bad in order to somehow make things right with God and make our way in. To have this kind of mindset is kind of like a kid that has like clean clothes on, but his hands are covered with mud, and he just looks down and he realizes he's got a speck on his shirt. And so he takes his hand to try to clean that speck off his shirt. We can imagine how that goes. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot cleanse the sin from ourselves. Paul says it's not about doing good or bad, and it's so much more than making mistakes. Without Jesus, we're spiritually dead. This idea of spiritual death means there has been a separation from God. God is not just the author of life, he is also the sustainer of life. When sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, mankind's relationship with God was broken. And we were alienated from him. So before we put our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually dead, separated from him. And it's not just that we're spiritually dead. Paul then describes the reality of how we once lived. That's what he says next. Before putting our faith in Jesus, we aren't independent people living free. We are enslaved people living under the tyranny of the enemy. He writes this, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. Before Jesus, we often think that we are doing things our way and on our own. We chase and pursue things we think will make us happy and fulfilled. We pursue pleasure and popularity and success and wealth and having nice things. And in addition, we try to find happiness and fulfillment in our relationships with others. We try to find, find this fulfillment from our spouses and from our children, our love interests, and sometimes even our friends. But when we pursue our source of happiness and fulfillment in pleasure or popularity or success or wealth or anything like these, we find ourselves chasing something that's empty, something that will leave us disillusioned and disappointed. And when we pursue this source of happiness and fulfillment in our relationships, we put an unfair and unreasonable expectation on those relationships and cause them to break down. The reason these break down is because they will never measure up to the weight of the expectation that these relationships can, that, that, that these relationships can actually give us the fulfillment that we seek. Jesus asked this question in Mark 8, verse 36. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. In other words, even if you acquired everything your heart desires, 
Apart from Jesus, you will be empty. We often have an inaccurate image of who Satan is and what he does. Movies like to portray him as this grotesque horror figure. And in a sense, he's kind of like that. But in reality, he's much more subtle and deceptive than he's often portrayed. Our enemy knows how sin has twisted our desire away from God and put it on ourselves. He does all he is able to do to take this twisted desire to destroy us. He uses our desire to please ourselves and he presents things to us to feed this desire. He offers them as ways to find freedom and fulfillment and in reality, they're just empty and sometimes they're destructive or cannot bear the weight of our expectations as a source of our fulfillment that only Jesus can provide. When we don't find fulfillment in these things, sometimes the enemy offers us us a way to escape from the pain and the disappointment of this life, which leads us into a deeper and deeper dependence on something other than God. The enemy doesn't want what's best for us. His native language is lying. Jesus describes him this way in John 10.10. He describes him as the thief who comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Apart from Jesus, we aren't free, but we're slaves to an enemy who's trying to destroy us. And then the third thing he points out here is before putting our faith in Jesus, we are already condemned to an eternity without God, without him. He said, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind there are some who think that when our life is over God will give us a pass or a grade on a curve but Paul says without Jesus we are condemned we're children of God's wrath this is sometimes the most difficult thing for us to get our heads around how can a God who is love condemn people to an eternity without him And it comes down to this key understanding. Condemnation because of our sin reveals both God's holiness and sin's destructiveness. God is holy, meaning God is set apart. There is no one like him, and there is no evil in him. God is also just, meaning not simply he does justice, But his essence is being just. When we sin, we sin against a holy and a just God. And being just, he punishes all who sin. The wages of sin is death. If he didn't, he wouldn't be just. So God's condemnation demonstrates both of these attributes, his holiness and his justice. So the better question then is not how can God condemn people to life without him, but how can a holy and just God rescue those who are condemned to a life without him? 
The answer is found in a single word, grace, which is what Paul talks about next. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised as up with him and seated with, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. There may be more, no other more significant phrase in all of Scripture than but God. It's kind of like the image that Paul's trying to draw here is like when all hope was lost, God. <laughs> it makes me think of like certain kinds of movies, especially like this one came to mind, the, the Return of the King, and there's a scene at the end of it, and if you've not seen it, I'm not going to spoil it, but Sam and Frodo, who are two characters in this, they find themselves in an impossible situation. They're on a rock, stranded in a sea of lava that's flowing down a hill. When all hope is lost, I won't tell you anymore. But just like in this scene, God is our hero who rescues us from an impossible situation. Why does he do this? Because God is love. Like we talked about last Sunday, God wasn't surprised by sin and the place that we would end up because of sin. Before he created anything, he knew what he would have to do to provide a way for us to be back with him. It would cost him his life on a cross. And he created us anyway. That's love. God is love and it is because of his love that he both created us and he rescues us. And it's through his grace that he has made a way for us to be restored back to him through Jesus. I heard this illustration back when I was in high school, so I don't even know who to give credit to this for. But this person described grace this way. So if I were to speed, and I'm sure none of you can relate to speeding and getting you know, in trouble for that. So if I were to speed and I were to appear before a judge and... The judge said, how do you plead? And I say, well, judge, I plead guilty. And he says, $150 fine and slaps his gavel. That's justice. If I were to appear before the judge and say, judge, how do you, how, they say, how do you plead? I, plead? I plead guilty. And the judge says, no fine. That's mercy. But if I were to stand before the judge and the judge were to say, how do you plead? And I say, guilty. He says, $150 fine, and he slaps his gavel. Then he comes off behind, from behind the bench, and he takes off his robe, and he reaches into his own wallet, and he takes out $150 and pays the clerk. That's grace. 
Paul describes what God's grace does. We are no longer dead, but we're made alive. He wrote, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It's through Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead that God pays the price for our sin and defeats the sting of death. He died so we could have life with God. Jesus made the way. He made the only way to be reconciled with God. And when we put our faith in him, we are restored to the author and the sustainer of life. We are made alive with Christ. By God's grace, this is an abundant life that we experience now. It's not some hope of a future life. It's an abundant life that we can have now. We have life with God. And he comes and he puts himself in the person of the Holy Spirit inside us to transform us, to make us more and more like Jesus so that we can experience this life as it was meant to be lived. Which leads us to the second thing that we see that God does through his grace. We are no longer slaves to the enemy, but we are freed and under the lordship of our loving and merciful God. He says this, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God rescues us from enslavement under the enemy who only wants to destroy us and places us under his lordship or his authority so that we can experience life as we were meant to, lead it, to, meant to live it. For some of us, this idea of authority, we bristle with this a little bit. It's because that really, on one hand, we really want to do things the way that we want to do them and not be told what to do. Or, or maybe it's even the fact that we've experienced some pretty bad examples of authority in our lives. But when we are under the authority of a God who is love and who is kind and who is merciful and who is life and who is good and desires that good for everyone who is under his authority, then we are in the best place that we can ever find ourselves. That is why it's so important for us to not only understand the condition from which he has rescued us, but also understand what he has rescued us to. He has rescued us to a life where we can trust him, where we can follow him, and we can obey, even when we don't fully understand why he tells us to live a certain way or to do a certain thing. By God's grace, we are placed under his authority where we experience this amazing, true freedom like no freedom that we, that we can find by doing things on our own. We experience security far greater than any efforts that we try and protect ourselves from harm. We experience peace and rest unlike any vacation or retreat that we could go to. We experience like this real hope that's different than any other thing that we try to put our hope in. And then Paul's third description of what grace does is this. We are no longer 
children of wrath, but we're children of God. He says, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, we have a place at his table. Jesus uses the imagery of like the kingdom of heaven being this banquet. And in Jesus' time, eating a meal with somebody had great significance. It indicated a deep relationship. It indicated a, a sense of status. It indicated this idea of belonging to someone. It's why the religious leaders were so upset when they saw Jesus eating with the people that they considered to be less than, the tax collectors and the, and the sinners. They're like, how in the world can God's anointed sit and eat with these people? If they knew who they were and what they were done, that's why it was such a big deal to them. And Paul tells us we have a seat at his table. We are God's sons and his daughters. We've been, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted by God and we are his children. And then Paul says something incredible. He reminds us that all of these things are something that we cannot earn, but it's simply a gift. He writes, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn this. There's no Jesus plus this or that. It's just Jesus. Like any gift, all we can do is accept what God has done for us and we accept that by putting our faith in Jesus. We trust Him with our lives. It's the most valuable of all gifts, and sadly, it's probably the most rejected gift. Paul concludes this section of his letter with both a reminder and an encouragement for us. In verse 10, he says this, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about that. We are God's workmanship. There's other translations of this that say we are God's handiwork and we are God's masterpiece. I, I love seeing the creativity of people. I love seeing art and woodworking and all kinds of, and poetry, those, I'm amazed by these things because I have no gifts in any of these areas and just thinking about the fact that as amazing as all of those different things that you see other people being able to create, just imagine the idea of being God's masterpiece. The ultimate creator making a masterpiece. That's who we are. Every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus are his masterpieces. We have been rescued and given a purpose. He created us for good works, to do his good. 
This isn't reserved for a few people in ministry. This purpose is for all who follow Jesus. We are all given the purpose to share what God has done through Jesus with everyone and anyone. We can do this regardless of what we do for a living or how much we know or we think that we know about what Scripture says. Each of us has a story of what God has done for us, of how He has rescued us, of what He is currently doing in our lives. You see, we were dead, but we've been made alive. We were slaves, but we are now free. We were condemned, but now we are children of God. We have an amazing opportunity to tell others about God's amazing grace that is available to anyone who will put their faith in Jesus. If you've not yet made that decision, maybe you're exploring all of this or you're hearing some of this for the first time or you're hearing it differently than you've ever heard it before, man, I would love to have a conversation with you or to talk to you or just to share more with you or answer questions that you have. If, if that's you this morning and maybe you're not comfortable like approaching me this morning, I understand, um, but, but we have these connect cards in the back of the seat and one of those is one of the questions I want to know more about is I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. If you check that, uh, I'll follow up with you or Dustin will follow up with you. You'd love to have coffee or lunch or just sit down and talk about what it means to follow Jesus. It's the best gift ever. It's the best decision that you can ever make. Don't miss the amazing gift that God offers us through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled back, for, uh, back to you. Father, thank you that you have rescued us through Jesus. And Father, I just ask right now um, that you would work and move as only you can through your spirit, that you can do what only you can do, God, right now. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.